2: Welcome
0: to How to Money. I'm Joel and I'm Matt and today we're talking about a game-changing approach to financial education with Dan LaSalle.
1: Joel, every week we talk about personal finance and one of the biggest reasons we talk about and share lessons about money is because most people have never had any sort of formal education when it comes to their personal finances. Only 17 states, including DC, require a personal finance course to be taken. And of those, only seven states participate in a standardized test for that course. It's unfortunate, but most states don't have a fun and robust personal finance curriculum. Yeah, that's lame. Yeah, it sucks. For that reason, we're really excited to have Dan LaSalle join us for this episode. Four years ago, as an English teacher, Dan started a personal finance program that not only teaches students the importance of budgeting, saving, and investing, but also gives them the opportunity to earn up to $5,000 a year and to put that money into a bank account of their own. He has created an innovative course that is truly changing the lives of the students enrolled. You know, Joel, it's also worth noting that Pennsylvania doesn't require financial literacy
0: as well like they're one of the states that's not included that really makes this even more impressive yeah dan's doing it anyway yeah Uh, all right (laughs) but before we bring dan on real quick i want to mention the beer that we're having on the show and actually first time ever we're having a cider instead of a beer so this is called happy trees by ancho and by the way, I can already tell this is going to be almost as good as having a beer. This is a delightful cider. And I look forward to uh, yeah talking more about this at the end of the episode. But let's bring on Dan. Dan, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you guys. The first question we ask anybody that we have on the podcast, Dan, is you know like, like we just mentioned, we're having a beer. Well, actually a cider today, right? But we have a beer on the show every week. And We're strained from our roots, Joel. <laughs> we are. We are. <laughs> so we want to know, what's your craft beer equivalent? Like, What do you splurge on from time to time?
3: Yeah. And mine's uh, probably definitely going to be an unconventional answer. But it is a, a sweet green salad. So you know those uh, salad places where you can get luxury salads? I spent like $20 on one and really go to work. So I'd definitely consider that my splurge item. $20 salad. <laughs> that is impressive, man. So how often do you allow yourself to indulge in this expensive salad? A great question. You're talking to a finance person who sort of budgets a little too much. So it's usually about once every two weeks. And man, do I enjoy it. <laughs> Wait, so what, like, what do you normally put on the salad that allows it to be $20? Uh, all different types of grilled chicken, different cheeses, different cooked and raw vegetables. So I just load it up. $20 later, I've got a great <laughs> meal and the uh, most expensive salad. Compared to what anyone else probably would pay. Yeah, the most expensive salad known to man. That's
1: impressive, Dan. I like that. All right, Dan, let's kind of dive into what we're going to be talking about uh, on this episode, which is financial education, specifically within the school system. Quickly, I think a way for us to explain to the listener what you do might be for you to kind of give an example or an anecdote of a student who has kind of gone through your program.
3: Can you paint a quick picture for us by giving us an example? A good example would be Sarah. So she had at one point an interest in being a social worker. So we set her up with a job at a school volunteering with some students with uh, very severe learning disabilities. So she would give up her lunch and pretty much what was her study hall period to work with students with severe disabilities and would bring her friends. So we would set up that program for her. She would work essentially. I would give her some money. And then during the day, she would be in a financial literacy class where she would learn about money and then also learn about what to do with the actual money she's earned. One of the coolest
0: things about
3: your program,
0: Dan, is that you actually give kids the ability to earn money at school. And so you're, you're actually giving them kind of this hands-on ability. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. That almost no other financial literacy program I've heard of Incorporates. But for you, I wanted to know what came first. Did you see the importance of financial literacy and, and want to find a way to teach your students, or did you see a need within your students first and then develop the curriculum kind of around that with them in mind?
3: So I think it was probably a mix of both. As a, a teacher in Philadelphia City Schools, you sort of see yourself earning less money compared to other people, and then you start to recognize sort of The importance of wealth generation and how it takes a long but gradual process. And then also having seen many students and families struggle with bills, struggle with rent, uh, mortgage payments, everything, it just sort of emerged over the years that this became not only a topic that's important for everyone, but something that should really start at a young age, especially when you have a pretty plastic financial situation where you know you are young enough and haven't made big enough decisions to get a car, go to college, anything like that yet, so that you could really follow all of the principles of becoming wealthy that we all know 10, 20, 30 years later when sometimes it's too late. Yeah. I mean,
0: that's something that Matt and I've talked about on the show before. And something that we're passionate about is seeing kids, especially at that age, right? Because that, that's when we're we're sending them out to get you know massive amounts of college debt. Kids are accruing student loan debt at, at record paces right now. And they have no idea what they're doing, essentially. The front lines, really, in this fight are in high school. And that's the place that we have actually put up the least of, of an effort for the most part. And so I think that's the biggest reason we wanted to have you on is is because it is such a battleground to see that you're actually taking it seriously. And you're making actual strides in lots of kids' lives in how you teach them about personal finance. And so yeah, we're going to get into some of the nuts and bolts. But I, I, I just wanted to mention that. like That is the most important time to teach kids about personal finance. And it's something that we're not doing.
3: Yeah, I really agree. I mean, if you think about it from like the age of 16 to 22... I really think there's like a financial developmental window. Like, you know, about like literacy develop, developmental windows when you're at a young age or like second language windows to learn a second language. But between the ages of 16 and 22, you're eligible to start having your first job. You can actually create your own savings and checking account. You can even set up a custodial or your own investment account. You are eligible to take out major loans, whether it be for cars, for college. So, really, in that six year period, It's a time to really make some great decisions, but it's also a time where you're really, really vulnerable. And I really think that if you aren't wise to the way money works and the way that you should spend your money, then you're really at a position to take advantage of and, dare I say, make mistakes that could start to take years, if not decades, to get out of we agree, right? Like We know that these concepts can change lives. How
1: did you see this as a possibility with your students when maybe others didn't? Is, was it just a matter of you thinking about it? Or do you feel that there were other things sort of stacked against your school specifically or your students? Uh, yeah, what, like what kind of gave you that hope to think that this is something that could actually be done?
3: Really, I think it started when the program began several years ago. All I knew at the very core is I wanted to set up Roth IRA accounts. And I know that on your podcast, you had talked about the beauty of a Roth IRA. And I really knew that that was just something that like any 18-year-old who's graduating this school should know. And it doesn't mean that they're going to be maxing out their Roth IRA at you know $6,000 a year, but at least know that this is something that they should really return to. And then just as I became more familiar with students' financial needs and their families, because I teach in a high poverty school. So 100% of our lunches are free for students. It became clear that it's not just Roth IRAs like you need to understand how insurance works, how just generally checking savings, the entire banking industry works, predatory, lending, credit cards, the work. So it started with the idea of like just getting students to not be scared of the stock market and to actually embrace it and to know a couple key things about it. But then over each passing year, I just wanted to expand into just anything and everything you need to know about money, just teaching it to teenagers and their families.
0: Dan, how did you learn all this stuff yourself? You're pretty young, so what was it that made you aware of kind of all these areas of personal finance where you know you could start to change your future ahead of you know most people because you're still a youngster yourself.
3: For me, it started probably right around the time I was graduating high school, and it just became very clear that the world is overpriced, especially to the smart consumer. So I went to community college over four year university, and to me. By the time I graduated high school, it was just so clear, like, why would I take calculus in a giant lecture hall when I know that I'd rather take my time on this? And then even after I graduated college, when students are doing research experience, internships, what part of the city to live in, should they get a car, take public transportation? It really just became clear to me that if you understand how money works, you understand really what you can pay for, what you can maybe get a better deal on, you can end up living, doing all the things that you really want to in life and just having more money left over because you weren't tricked into buying something or a service that you didn't need. That's great. You know, you, what you said is that the world is overpriced, which,
1: man, something about that really strikes a chord <laughs> with me. And it's, is, is it that it's overpriced? you know, Or is it, is, is it marketed to be more expensive? And for there to be more money maybe going into the pockets of, of corporations? And I don't want to get too like, corporations are evil sort of thing. But there's, there's something about that, about the world being overpriced that uh, kind of resonates with me.
3: I mean, I think, right, every purchase is essentially, it's a status uh, choice. So you can either choose to sort of display something about you, whether you're buying a BMW or an Audi, or you can go for something like, in the case of a car, like a Toyota, something that'll do just as good of a job, but more functional. So really, at the end of the day, there are certain things that we all will want to choose status over, whether it's a cool t-shirt or the university we went to. And then other times we realize that I'm going to pick function over status. So I think that, at least in this country... Especially because so much of our economy is you know driven by consumerism, but you know you don't, it's not an economics podcast, but every purchase we could make, we're always going to have a variety of options, because someone's going to want the shinier, flashier thing, and someone's going to want just the same thing, but just all it does is serve a function without uh, a certain status attached to it. So I, I think that might explain why that is. Yeah, I think we also
0: have the ability to choose future flexibility over status, right? And that's kind of what we talk about a lot on this show is is that there's all these choices you can make with your money and really all these small choices and all these big choices that we discuss every week. It's really the chance to choose your own future flexibility, and to design your own life in a certain way, as opposed to having choices made for you based on poor spending and poor choices and poor habits. And so that's why I found this quote, actually, that that uh, from you really interesting, Dan. You said, essentially, that anybody from humble beginnings can live frugally, invest 10 to 20% of their paycheck in low-cost ETFs and become a millionaire. And you're a teacher right in, like we said, an impoverished neighborhood in, in Philadelphia. These kids don't come from lots of money. They don't come from probably even households where there is a lot of money discussion happening in the house, right? And so you're kind of taking that on your own shoulders. But I find it fascinating that you have this strongly held belief that anybody can do this. All of your students can take part in this uh, in this truth that you can become, over time, if you live frugally and invest 10 to 20% of what you make, you can become wealthy. Tell us why you believe that so strongly.
3: The evidence is just there, right? There has never been a 30 year period in all American history where the stock market hasn't averaged, not accounting for a inflation, 6% annual returns a year. So you know the stock market is very volatile, but over the long term that's what it averages a year. So if you invest and you stay with it, you're going to make lots of money no reason that over time we can ever expect american property values to ever do anything but increase i mean right think of the great things that are always occurring the innovation in this country why wouldn't having a home somewhere in this country eventually be worthwhile now i'm not saying that everyone should invest at the same time or in their life or that everyone needs a house but there do seem to be these things which i think i become increasingly grateful for that just sort of exist in our society that mean that we can if we are disciplined and wise make choices which do allow us to accumulate wealth and then not be fearful of finances.
1: Yeah, that's so great. And like Joel said, this is what we talk about every single week. And so, even though we're just, you know, we're about to dive into the program, like what you have set up there at the school, these are things that, as individuals in our own jobs and in, in our own communities, not in school, that we practice. And something that anybody listening to this, whether or not they have children or not, are, are, are concepts and principles that are good to be reminded of and, and things that. I mean, that are good for Joel and I to remind ourselves as well. So so Dan, we're going to hear more about the specific program that you have set up there at your school. But first, we're going to take a quick break.
0: wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and
1: find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance
0: smarter. Kachava is the all-in-one superfood shake made up of high-quality plant-based nutrients. It's got greens, superfruits, plant proteins, antioxidants, adaptogens, probiotics, and in other words, everything your body craves to feel your best. This is where Cachaba really earns their 52,000 plus five-star reviews. dot com slash how to money. That's spelled K-A-C-H-A-V-A and get ten percent off your first order. That's K-A-C-H-A-V-A dot com slash how to money. Spring cleaning is kind of a, an annual rite of passage. We've all got to do it, minimize the junk that we have in our house. Emily and I, we just cleaned our closets out. It took hours but it was so worth it. Now we've only got stuff in there that we love and it's easier to find everything too. And so, you know, while cleaning your closets is helpful, well, there's something else you can do for your family this spring. Shopping for life insurance with Policy Genius, for example, is a really important part of your financial planning for the year. Save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. I'm guessing that a lot of listeners are starting to solidify their summer travel plans. We always like to get the families together, Matt, for a week yeah, at the we beach do. every single summer. We've already got that trip to St. Simon's on the calendar. Pump for that. But sometimes those vacations. Or you do some optimizing and make some money off it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb, you just need to start using it. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. All right, we're back from the break back with Dan LaSalle talking about uh, his game-changing approach to financial education that he has taken into his local school in Inner City Philadelphia and real quick is there a name for the
1: program Dan like we kind of we, we we refer to the program as Dan's program but,
3: <laughs> but what's the official name I've been calling it the Philly Finance Cooperative, but uh, because like I take donated money, I take that money, I turn it into student paychecks, I help them manage their accounts. So I like to think there's like a cooperative element, but legally, I'm not technically a cooperative. And so I'm actually in the process of filing for nonprofit status because ever since. That Market Watch article came out. A couple other schools have reached out for me to help them, and I'm like so down to do that. But cooperative is not like a legally good word because I'm technically not a cooperative. So there's a better name that's got to come at some point. You want to be just like REI, basically, right? Like they're a co-op. So, exact. Yep.
0: (laughs) So Dan, what is it that makes the Philly Finance Co-op soon to be uh, (laughs) name change? What What is it that makes your program? Different than any other sort of personal finance education program going on in, in any other high school around the
3: country so it 's definitely the only one like this in the country. The first thing is is we teach students about financial literacy that one 's not so different. The second is is we give students actual paychecks for jobs around the school and in the community, so it 's meant to be some type of job that just makes the community or school better, and then we set up students with checking savings and investment accounts so that students can practice. All of the principles of wealth generation that we talk about in the class, budgeting, investing, they can practice that with their actual money. Because right, you wouldn't want a doctor that wasn't interning under doctors as a medical school student. Lawyers are often clerks for judges first. So if you are someone young and inexperienced with money, especially if you come from a high poverty background, I think it's safe to say that exposure to money with real money at a young age is probably going to be beneficial
1: yeah so, on the note, like like you said, we're talking about real money, right, and so I'm assuming these these students are they have real jobs. You mentioned one earlier, like what are some other examples of jobs that they're doing like within the school you said within the community as well that's correct. Uh, what are some other examples I would love to to hear some of these positions that these students have
3: great, yeah, so I have one student who has started a spoken word club and competes in the city and is actually going through the process of filing for his own nonprofit status. So while he's in college, he can help other schools start up spoken word poetry teams. I've paid some students to be captains of the debate team. We've had a student newspaper. We've had students that have gone to the local elementary school to teach finance to elementary school students. We've had a couple female students set up a Peer mentoring group just for other female students or students who identify as female. So, really, if students have a real yearning to make the school and community better, and they often do, it's just trying to find a place that they can put that interest to the betterment of the school and community. And then I just, you know, throw them some money for it. So, does the fact that the kids that take
0: your financial literacy class uh, that enter into this, uh, does the fact that they get paid make that the most popular class in school? <laughs>
3: I think so. I mean, every student wants to be in it. And I really hope it's because that they are committed to being millionaires and saving and budgeting. But something tells me it's a fact that some students walk around the school with a several thousand dollar check.
0: Well, <laughs> is, is there any requirement for kids that enter the class and start making money based on the, the
3: job they're doing, the service they're performing? Is there, is there any requirement for where that money goes? I do think the program is effective, but I think that one of the reasons it's effective is because I don't have any strings attached to how they spend their money. Because if I am telling them they have to save a certain percent, they have to invest a certain part, I'm sure any parent would say, you know, as soon as they require something too much that the student or the kid hasn't really believed in themselves, as soon as I'm out of the picture, they're going to do whatever they want with their money. So I'd rather them make their mistakes now, have those conversations with me like, hey, I plan to budget 50% of my money, but I spent all of it at prom or I spent all of it on a gift for my girlfriend or boyfriend. And then really having those conversations and figuring out how to turn a spender into a saver and just come up with budgeting plans that work for everybody. So that's why I am very passionate about actually not telling them what to do with their money once they've earned it.
0: You know, I think that's great, too, because kids can almost make this huge mistake on a microcosm level, like spending it all on prom, right? That's the equivalent of someone our age racking up $15,000 in credit card debt or something like that, right? And so they're making this enormous mistake that... In their own world. In their own world. That that was $500, maybe. But you're able to kind of do a postmortem and discuss after the fact. And maybe that prevents them from five years down the road, racking up too much credit card debt. So that's kind of cool.
3: That's what I want to believe because I think that that's how it works, right? If we realize that we've made a mistake, we tend to be really grateful that it wasn't bigger after we've gotten over the fact and the guilt that we have made that mistake. And what's interesting is is that I think something that really is helpful for my students to identify with is no one likes owing anyone a favor. And no one likes owing anything to anyone. And so debt, is the equivalent of that. And to realize that they had certain plans for money to last them through the summer, through winter break, throughout the year, and to see themselves put in a situation where they don't have that money, where they could feel tempted to borrow, or just to realize that their dollar didn't get as far as they thought they would, or they didn't have the discipline to do that. Coming to terms with how effective they are at knowing themselves with money should make them less likely to make those mistakes you're talking about later.
1: Yeah, well, that's so true. And I mean, that's just what's so powerful about what you're doing is that, again, it's real money. You're allowing t- them to make the mistakes now while they have you sort of o- overseeing them, right? Like, I mean, essentially, you're kind of acting like a money coach. And then with within this sort of framework, they have the freedom to truly fail. They, they might waste that money, like you said, and, and they don't get through winter break. And... They have to report back to you, I guess. You know, or I guess with the with the course, you can explain more how it works. I guess in a little bit here, but but yeah, like they have to talk about that. It's not like something they can just go off and open up another credit card. So if you're a twenty year old and out of school, that's maybe what you would do. You'd make your your mistake, and then well, shoot, maybe I need need to go get a payday loan. Maybe I need to open another credit card. What are some other ways that I can kind of keep the money flowing? Am I double down on that mistake? Yeah, exactly, And, and and it only compounds. I mean, quite literally, at that point as well, and. But when they're able to make these mistakes in a controlled sort of lab... But with real money and with the real consequences, it's no wonder that these kids are truly learning. Uh, you know the impact of being wise with their money and
0: how that affects their their sort of bottom line. So, so speaking of, of that, Dan, I want to get into the specifics on how you teach kids about investing because we've talked about the stock market game. I think most of us probably played the stock market game when we were in high school. I know yeah. both Matt and I did, and it just it feels like you're pressing buttons and you're gambling and you're trying to beat all the other. It's kids gambling. In your class. Yeah, you don't really learn anything. <laughs> (laughs) thing about wealth growth by doing that. So how do you teach your kids about investing in order to try to help make it stick and make it easy?
3: I first, by say that if anyone who is familiar with the stock market game, is actually everything wrong with investing in that game? Yes. <laughs> because... And uh, I don't know if you've talked about this before in your podcast, but you get the most money from selling and trading as much as possible. But really, the key to making money in the stock market is getting very diverse mutual funds, so very diverse groups of stocks of companies that usually perform in a specific industry. So all the tech companies, all the top healthcare companies, or a sampling of the entire stock market to the S&P 500 and just not even checking it. Maybe once a year looking at their performance because over the long run, it increases. But I think really how I get them excited about the stock market is there's just never been a 30-year period in American history where it has not averaged 6% annual yearly return not accounting for inflation. The stock market is the single greatest generator of human wealth in the history of human civilization. If you just have the discipline to purchase these exchange-traded funds, these mutual funds, these groups of stocks that just track the stock market, just track industries, because right, when would we ever expect the American stock market to not grow over decades? When would we not expect the tech sector of America to not gradually increase over decades? I try and make it interesting because it is such a powerful generator of wealth. And the smart strategy is actually doing the least, is touching it the least. So I think there's just a little bit of magnetism to knowing that something so powerful can also be so simple. So how do you get a 16-year-old to be like, Whoa, that's cool. I want to do that for the next 30 years. (laughs) So I think that the key to finding stocks in the stock market fascinating is to just see the growth of different industries in America. You have to have some sort of appreciation for the growth of cars in America before we just see this immense amount of competition from Toyota, Subaru, and other companies to see what Facebook and Tesla and other major companies are doing. And once you get an appreciation for just how much the private industry can sort of generate real novelty and innovation, and then to just get excited by just waiting for these sort of trends to just continue over time is, I think, a real hooking point. Because everyone finds Google Glasses, everything super cool. But it's just getting them to realize that once you find all of these cool things that our country and businesses are doing, the the next step is actually just to buy some diverse mutual funds and then just wait. You talked about a couple companies in particular, and you mentioned Tesla. And I, I think you know one of the most
0: fascinating things that I've ever seen in a chart is essentially if you had... Instead of buying the first Apple computer, if you had bought stock in Apple. And, and there's this timeline, there's this progression of... Every time Apple released a product, there's the equivalent of if you had spent that much money buying Apple stock instead of buying the Apple product, the product. how rich you would be. And I think that, it to me, encapsulates exactly this lesson that you're trying to teach. It's showing like this is what American innovation looks like. And you can go buy stuff. (laughs) You can go buy what they're selling, or you can go invest in the company. And you can make healthy returns and essentially set yourself up for life by investing well, as opposed to buying the stuff that those companies are selling. And I think that's just... I mean, that's a fascinating concept. That's awesome, Joel. Dan... Everyone has a different why behind their money.
1: We talk about that a good bit on the show, sort of the, the motivator behind our money, essentially the why behind our money. So how do you teach personal finance in a way where students who have different life goals, whether that be like college, uh, going straight into the workforce, going to trade school, or even the military? How do you teach personal finance in a way that all of those students find the material
3: interesting and relevant? So the first thing is to teach them that personal finance is all about freedom. That learning about money is to pretty much afford your own freedom to do what you want with your life. So if you want to have a job as a NASA astronaut and you need to go get your PhD first or if you consider yourself that you're going to have like a big family and you want to take care of your grandparents, so you know that you've got to have a lucrative career at first to make sure that your mom and grandmom are taken care of, and then go do something that really excites you, like writing a book. Really, finance is the ability to fund and live and afford the craziest dreams that you have. So if you are someone who wants to be a chef by day and a poetry writer by night, this is just the tool to being able to do whatever you want. And so it's getting them to realize that managing your money is a bit of a superpower. It's the way in which that you can afford all of the the choices that you want to have. So for example, one of our first projects is to design a retirement plan. So the very first project and lesson that we do in the class is for them to envision what they want the last 10 to 20, 30 years to be. So is it having multiple beach houses? Now, if, if you know that you want to spend the last 30 years of your life totally relaxing, well, what do you think it's going to be like 20 years before that. So, maybe when they're 50 years old, how old will their kids be? Do they want their kids to not have to struggle through certain things? So, in that case, how much money should you have saved? What types of things are you going to want to have to spend in order to provide certain allowances and comforts for your family? And then we just back it up to present day. So, right, their first immediate decision is going to be what do they do after they leave high school? But it's keeping in mind all of the 20, 30, 50, 100 goals that they have for themselves and their loved ones decades in the future yeah that's perfect yeah you start
1: with that end in mind and then once you know that goal and what you're trying to achieve you can you can do anything
0: and I think too when we're 16 17 18 it's really hard for for I don't know I, I don't think I had many major goals at that point in time when I was that age it's kind of hard to think that far in the future but you need someone to kind of prod you in that direction because if you don't have that end in mind then it's so much harder to do the due diligence now and make the changes. So yeah, I love that you're doing that. How are you um, teaching kids about saving and budgeting? How are you connecting the dots when it comes to those two things?
3: We have like a a five-step method. And the goal at the end of step five is to be able to afford the life they want. So step one is visualize their legacy and their retirement. So I, you know, I talked a little bit about that, but it's really envisioning everything they want. So then step two is is that they've got to live below their means. So before I even talk about saving and investing, is like when there's a variety of options for you to pay for things, the more you go for the cheaper thing, the more you have money left over. And when you have the money left over, and if you save that and then you invest in some of your savings, now you're on the path to being able to afford all of those things that you visualized about. So I tell them these are standard beliefs in the industry, but they say that you know you should save ten to twenty percent of your income. So that's what I tell them. I mean, ideally, I tell them you should. You know, you're all teenagers. You many of you may end up using some of your money to support your family, but I could see you saving fifty percent of your paycheck. But I say it is like, look, the experts will tell you in your life save 10 to 20% of your paycheck, that first paycheck out of college until the time you retire. So we're going to start with that now. So save 10 to 20%. So I'm sure many of them will go on and maybe save in a different way. They might put an entire paycheck every couple months into their savings. They may choose to save 50% of their paycheck. And then a year from then, they'll only save 5%. So Dan, it's one thing
1: for them to learn some of this concept now, right? And for them to put some of those Principles into practice right now as well. Like, how do you feel about these students after they graduate? Is there a way that you feel you're able to kind of connect with them on a level that allows them to see sort of that long term, right? Like you've talked about setting goals, but like, how do you make that connection of, hey, once you leave high school and you do get that first job, how do you encourage them to basically continue down that path other than just what you've already taught them? Is there a way
3: that you feel that you're able to kind of connect with them on that level? Great question. I mean, really what you're talking about is one of the the big problems in clouds that sort of haunts all social science, right? Like after you've done an intervention and you see promising results, what makes you think that these promising results will continue, you know, into eternity? So, one advantage I have is that we set them up with bank accounts so we we take them to trips to the local bank credit unions we get them set up with a checking and savings account i get them set up with a budget so really you know it's this idea of primacy what you learn first often has an imprint in your mind where you connect other ideas to so they can have this bank account as long as they want and many 18 year olds we set them up with a Roth IRA as soon as they graduate because you know they're turning 18 by the time they graduate even though they may be in my program a few years before that so part of leading to, I think, long-term change, which of course is the goal. One advantage we have is that we have the bank accounts, which last them. And I mean, I'm always an email away for them to be in contact with many students who come and maybe come up to the high school to get a transcript and I see them you know I'm always like tell me how much is in your savings account what what are you invested in and and, and you know as soon as they see me they they can just see me coming down the halls and they know that's going to be my first question I'm going to ask <laughs> <laughs> and if they just blew it all on sneakers they start running the other way yeah <laughs> right right but I think that what makes that question so great is right is the goal is is that long term, they're making healthy financial decisions. And that's harder and harder as you enter the very complex world with very complex financial decisions that come. Houses, college, jobs, apartments, leases, used cars, new cars. So my only hope is that even though they have these bank accounts, even though I'm only you know a correspondence away via email, is that they are reflective enough that when they do make poor decisions. I'm sure all of us still have buyer's remorse from time to time, that they are just able to reflect on it, unstick themselves, and just be in that upward trajectory of just making better and better financial decisions that we all hope to be on with each passing year. Yeah. I mean, the
0: fact that you're setting them up with accounts at a local credit union, and then trying to help them open up a Roth as they're graduating. I mean, those 2 steps right there are, are huge. And I think just having those accounts open one at a good institution like a local credit union, and then actually having the Roth open is, is huge because there's so much we can tell people to do stuff, but actually helping them, especially at that age, do the work, take that first step. I think you're totally right to that idea of primacy. It's, it's actually doing it and having someone help you do it is, is huge to making sure that there's actually follow through and buy-in and kind of that continued ability to take advantage of, of what you've been taught. And one more thing I wanted
1: to note, Dan, is like, I mean, you mentioned how would you see a student who's been in your program or been in the course, you know, you, you head straight towards them and you ask them how much money is in their their bank
3: account. Like, do you realize how weird that is? Oh, super weird. Super weird. You should see the adults around me. They're like, well, like, why would you ask that? I was like, look, I've, I've been with this student. I've known this family for a while. So, and I've been giving them paychecks for a couple years. So I, I better ask how much is in their savings. And I'm about to turn to mom and dad right there and be like, look, that is like, let me pull up my Excel chart because that is $300 less than you told me last time. And you specifically told me you were budgeting for $1,000 by this time this year. So what happened? I think that. We we all have nagging parents and friends, but there's something to be said about someone who's always giving you that gentle reminder of what you should do.
1: Completely. Yeah. I mean, it, it goes back to just setting the habits, right? And so if that's a conversation that they're used to having with somebody, well, guess what? They're going to continue to have those conversations with their friends, with their family. And that's a way, aside from the the formal education that they're getting within the program, within the school and from you they're learning from each other. And it's a discussion that they're having. And for us, like on the podcast, that's a huge reason why we talk about money is just to have these conversations and to normalize it. We talk about how there's a taboo around money and how it's not something that people talk about freely and openly like that. And so I just wanted to note that you are a weirdo like us and free to talk about money like that with a student. I think that's amazing. That's just something we want to see more of. So kudos to you, man. So how do the teachers feel
0: about you asking how much they've been budgeting (laughs) and saving?
3: So, uh, I've had a couple teachers approach me about helping them with their finances, and they know that I love talking about it. So, when there are other adults, families in the building, because it, you know, it comes up, I have people to show up to my door and ask me questions. I, I love it. You got the open door policy. That's great. That's right. And I mean, I'm also like super open about my finances. So, when they ask me how much money I make, I make it very clear. When they're like, how much do you spend on rent? You know, I feel right. It's, it's all what we model. So, money can be very exciting. And what makes money so powerful is also the fact that it can be very frightening and like debilitating for people. So I think that, right? Like money has power, but you want to give it the right type of power. So keeping it hidden and secret can be problematic when it's a learning experience. So you're right. It's about opening up these conversations between students and their families and adults and people who are educators and trying to make everybody more familiar with this special power that influences every decision that we make in the adult world. Mm. So we've got just a little bit more time with Dan and we're
0: going to talk about how you know, we can actually take some of these things that we're discussing and incorporate them at the home level too, especially if you have kids. And we'll get to that right after the break. wherever you go next make it happen with a smarter travel credit card don't wait to make smart financial decisions
1: compare and find smarter credit cards savings accounts and more today at nerdwallet.com as with all cards credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply nerd
0: wallet finance smarter cachava is the all-in-one superfood shake made up of high quality plant-based nutrients it's got greens, superfruits, plant proteins, antioxidants, adaptogens, probiotics, and in other words, everything your body craves to feel your best. This is where Kachava really earns their 52,000 plus five-star reviews. Dot com slash how to money. That's spelled K-A-C-H-A-V-A, and get ten percent off your first order. That's K-A-C-H-A-V-A.com slash how to money. I'm guessing that a lot of listeners are starting to solidify their summer travel plans. We always like to get the families together map for a week yeah, at the we beach do. every single summer. We've already got that trip to St. Simon's on the calendar. Pump for that. But sometimes those vacations Or you do some optimizing and make some money off it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host.
2: If you're listening to this podcast right now and you're a small business owner, listen up. Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're actually choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers
1: All right, we're back from the break now. We've got Dan LaSalle and Dan. we're talking about the program that you have set up there at the school uh, to teach kids about personal finance. How is it that you are measuring the success of the program like you've got like you've grown uh, I think when you started out, you had something like thirty one students and now you're up to eighty something,
3: and so it's expanded but how do you yeah, how do you measure the actual results So I guess I should start by saying is that the goal is that all of these students are going to be millionaires. 40 50 60 years from now. And I'm trying to find some way of collecting data that lets me feel optimistic that all of this work is like worth it and that they're going to live a life of financial sustainability. So luckily students before participating in the program have to sign a legal waiver so I'm allowed to like ask these questions. They have to just sign, you know, acknowledging, you know, that I'm not a certified financial planner, that I'm not doing anything other than for their educational purposes. So I have them show me their bank account balances. You know, show me what is your checking, what is your savings, and then we track it. We track their budgets. We track how successful they are at their budget. So I can say at the end of the at the end of the year, we had half of the money I had given students was still in their savings account. So out of a revenue stream. 50% is in their savings account one year later. So a 50% savings rate definitely beats most adults that I talk to. And I also think it really goes against a lot of stereotypes that people have about low-income families and low-income families of color. Because you know these are students who are on... When you look at the data, on balance are great savers. And I also track how much they've like sort of mastered a lot of assessments about investing and saving and, and credit cards. So I'm also looking to make sure that they actually like understand these things. Cause if they don't understand it now, they're certainly not going to remember it 10, 20, 30 years from now. That doesn't mean that they definitely will, but I've got a problem if they don't leave the class and there's certain key things they haven't learned. You know, Dan, a recent guest on our show. Also named Dan, Daniel. Uh,
0: he, his his dad uh, was a financial planner. And now he's a financial planner. And they grew up talking about it around the dinner table. And so there's just this level of familiarity and comfort and ability to talk about it because it's something they talked about as a family all the time, consistently. So what are the biggest hurdles having conversations and having this class with with kids maybe who come from disadvantaged backgrounds who probably aren't having conversations around the dinner table about Roth IRAs and index funds.
3: That's true. So I every year I sort of kick off and I have like a a big dinner with all the families at the school. So we sort of explain to the families like what's in store, what are our hopes, and you know I also open up questions to parents and many of them are not familiar with what a 401k plan is about retirement. So I'm not saying that this is true of all families, but it's definitely true that these are hidden pieces of information for no reason. So unless you do have a family member who's a parent and a financial planner, and they're both talking at the dinner table. These really clear and often, you know, very time and time again, true rules of wealth generation are hidden from most of us, which is just a shame. Just we do not have enough people talking about it, normalizing it and teaching it in schools. Yeah. So do you see any of your students actually, I mean, like you
1: said, they're learning in the, in the class. Do you see these students going home and actually teaching some of their parents? There's almost a role reversal, right? Where the, the kids are kind of coming to the table with the knowledge.
3: Do you see that happening at all? Do you hear about that? I had one parent who it was really funny who's who came to me and said you, my my daughter now keeps bothering me about all my credit card bills coming in the mail. And I'm like, <laughs> well, I'm not going to say anything cuz I'm not here to like tell you how to live your life, but I'm I'm like that's actually great. So, I'm I'm glad your daughter's saying that. But uh, I also have this really geeky textbook I wrote for the class that sort of like is all of the Financial literacy information training written in a really engaging way. And what's, what's interesting is because, you know, there's a lot to the program the, the the jobs, the bank accounts, the actual material. So I needed a, like a little book to tie all together. And what was interesting is that the parents seem to like it a lot more than the kids do, which I just think is funny. So while they, they might find certain chapters I wrote kind of boring, the parents definitely want to talk about it.
1: So is that a resource available only to the students
3: uh, kind of going through that class or is that something online that you've made public? Or yeah, how does that work? If I ever get a website for the program, I would definitely make it public because I I have students all the time who are come to come to me in my office because I'm an assistant principal now and they're like oh tell me about this money class you teach and I just give them a, of like copies of uh, of my book that I've stapled on the on the uh, with the, the school copier so I'm just you know distributing it to any, anyone and everyone who wants to talk about money who wants to like not be scared of the stock market who I want to be kind of fearful of credit cards all that stuff I'm, I'm willing to send it to whoever. So on that
0: note, Dan, for other educators potentially listening, we actually had you know a, a high school teacher recently write in and ask the question about teaching his students you know about money in the classroom. Uh, how can other educators and parents who want to either get involved in what you're doing or just learn more about how to to teach children about personal finance, like how how would you suggest they get started?
3: Yeah, so you know anyone who wants to reach out so that. I can provide whatever resources and give them guidance. can email me at Cooperative at gmail.com. There's also a great website and nonprofit that has the mission of having every high school in this country have a personal finance class available to each student. So that's nextgenpersonalfinance.com. So that's a great website that I would turn anyone who's first interested to going to that. And then I think that the advice I would give to anyone who wants to teach it is is like there are certain key principles behind wealth generation. And it's you know the rule of 72, compound interest, know the difference between your needs and wants, budget. So I think that you can hit these big important tenets and also talk about the psychology and the importance of it without having to know a lot about finance. Because so much of being good with your money is more of a self-discipline and a topic of psychology, really, than it is about money. So I think that anyone who does want to begin that journey can really start by getting students and anyone who's interested really just familiar with their own habits when it comes to spending and exposure to money. Nice. So Dan,
1: outside of the context of schools, you know, do you feel that parents could teach something like this to their kids on a like, smaller or on an individual level? And if so, how do you think this would be different in the classroom versus at home?
3: I get the same question from parents. And so what I tell them is, have goals with your child and ones that you both can share together and track together. Because anyone can make promises about what they will do with their money. It's really about setting a goal and then following up to see if they've met that goal. So for example, if it's save half of their paycheck, so they cash out their paycheck, and they literally put half that money in an envelope, and they're not going to touch it until the end of the month, set a first step like that. And then check in with your child at the end of the month. So make it a team effort. Have it have a clear goal, whether it's saving, whether it's budgeting, whether it's like, look, we're not going to spend more than $200 going out to eat over the next three months and track it. So it's set a goal, really, the parent and the child, make it a team effort and then track that goal. And then if that goal gets easy, then it's time to add another goal. Nice. I mean, that's crazy simple, right? (laughs) Like, what what stands out to me about that is that it's not
1: something that's complicated. You're not saying, you know, take a certain percentage and put it here, take another percentage, put it here, make sure that you're only living on this amount, and with the other amount, like what you're saying is just like choose a singular, simple goal, follow through with it, check up on it, make sure that you're progressing, and then from there, yeah, sounds like what you're saying is add on to that once you make those baby steps, right? Once you have some wins, and then you can, you know, step up the complexity if you need to.
3: Yeah, they say that personal finance, the keys to becoming rich, it's it's simple but difficult. So, it's not complex. The rules are often simple. It's it's still difficult though because it requires that aspect of self-discipline and concentration to make sure that you follow those often just simple rules. Yeah, there was a professor a few years back
0: who who made news for writing all everything you needed to know about personal finance on an index card. And it's funny because you know, we do two podcasts every week. We talk about money a lot. But really, when, it, when you boil it down, that the most important financial principles can fit on the size of an index card. And if you can just actually read those and then do what they say, you'll, you'll be great. You'll be gravy. You'll be fine. You'll be setting yourself up for handling money well for the rest of your life. The problem is, like you said, Dan, they're simple. But really, when it comes to the follow through and our psychology and and making it happen, that's that's when uh, when the rubber hits the road is often when we you know fall off the back of the cart, right? when we choose not to do it. So,
3: and just to provide evidence to that testimony, my students read the book, the index card, and one of their essays they have to write is how are the rules that I recommend for wealth generation similar, if not identical, to the rules of the index card? So. I like broad diverse mutual funds and you'll find that one of those rules of the index card that you're talking about is low cost ETFs, you know? They say save 10 to 20% of their paycheck. I say the same thing. They say pay the minimum balance on credit cards. I say avoid credit cards except get one, use it once a year, only take out loans for college, but you'll find that you're right. I think that part of the the same reason that you can fit all of the rules for becoming wealthy on an index card is the same reason that I end up teaching the same thing as the index card without ever having actually read the index card before be teaching the class. Uh, I've got one more question for you, Dan. Do, do you find that there are certain
1: concepts that you see your students grasping well and doing a very good job with that you see maybe your adult friends having a difficult time with, that you see your adult friends struggling with and you're like, man, how is it that these students can get it and follow through and do what they're supposed to do?
3: But my my peers, they can't even do that. Absolutely. And it's, I think it's really going to... Oh my goodness. Uh, every single student, I I can tell you, certainly they leave knowing not to buy in individual stocks. And how many people do you know really think that like Tesla or a certain company is going to go huge? They know that that is not the way because who knows what could happen to an individual company. And they know that debt is something to be taken on after serious consideration and to really be very, very skeptical of credit cards. So we'll see what happens to my students 10, 20, 30 years later. But I believe that all of them will have one, if not very minimal credit cards, will avoid debt, and that they will not be buying in individual stocks. And that is something that I can say is very rare among the people my age that I know. Well, uh, Dan, this has been a
0: really fun conversation. It's been really enlightening. And just I'm so happy for the kids that go through this education in your classroom. I mean, I think it's just the coolest thing. So, thank you so much for joining us and for all your hard work creating and implementing this financial literacy approach in your high school. We really appreciate you coming on the show.
3: Yeah, this was really fun. Thanks uh really thank you for taking an interest in the program and you know, thanks for having me on and thanks for caring about this stuff just as much as me. So, you know, we're all fighting the same fight.
1: Joel, man, what an amazing conversation we just had with Dan. You know, one of the things that stood out the most to me was how he is using real money, like real cash money that these kids are earning. And it's not some simulation where it's just like a game that they're playing, right? It's not the game of life. They're not playing Monopoly. They're not investing fake dollars in like the stock market game, but they're using real money and they're opening real bank accounts. And it's no wonder that he is having such an impact on these kids because they're learning the real lessons as well.
0: And we call them kids, but really, they're, they're, adults, <laughs> they're adults at this point, yeah. <laughs> right? And, and Dan is treating these kids like adults. And that's what's so cool because we've kind of made it so that kids don't have to grow up until later in life. And Dan is saying, you know what? These are things you need to know. Like now, next year, three years from now, you, you need to know these concepts. And I love that he's kind of ingraining them from a young age because that's kind of what I wish would have happened for me in high school. I don't know how hard it is to learn them later, especially after maybe a series of bad beats or taking out you know debt that you shouldn't have, racking up some credit card debt. And so to learn on the, the front end, as opposed to the back end of bad decisions. I mean, that's a win-win for, for everyone involved. And I think what Dan's doing is innovative. It's interesting. And it's making a real difference in uh, kids' lives and their families' lives.
1: Yeah. And again, one of the things that stood out to me was how he's allowing his students to fail within the program. And through those small failures, like you said, like you mentioned, like, yeah, they might blow a lot of money on prom. But the equivalent to that in real life is maybe taking out a car loan that you shouldn't have taken out or losing thousands and thousands of dollars maybe in the stock market because you put it on a single stock. A number of different sort of mistakes that would be very easy to make and that I think a lot of young adults make once they are out on their own. I think it's amazing that Dan is doing all this. And and it's really exciting to think, too, uh, how this can expand and grow. Hopefully, he'll hear from folks uh, because of this episode that will reach out to him and see if
0: there's a way that they can get a program set up like this in their own school. Yeah. In particular, the teacher who reached out to us on a recent... Listener Question episode asking about how he can teach his students. Oh, that's right. And you know what? I think he and Dan hooking up would be the perfect thing. So, all right. Let's get back to the beer real quick. And by beer, I mean cider. (laughs) First time we're drinking (laughs) it. Let's just call it a beer because that's what we do. Okay. All right. So, uh, but it's the first time we're having a cider on the show. Our friend Andrew uh, brought this one back from a recent trip. It was really kind of him. This uh, is actually, honestly, I'm not really a cider guy. This is really, really good. This is called Happy Trees. By Ancho. And this was delicious. It's a spontaneously fermented dry cider. I could drink this often, man. It was a really, really tasty treat. Yeah, you know, it's a dry cider, so it drinks
1: really cleanly. But because it's got that spontaneous fermentation going on, I think that's what gives it that sort of funk on the front end that I notice. As soon as you drink it, uh, there's sort of like this wild funkiness to it. And yeah, I think that is that wild fermentation. But then it's super refined and really clean. And yeah, it's very delicious. So Andrew, thank you so much for donating this cider to the show. Uh, I wasn't sure if we're actually going to have this one on, but I'm glad we did,
0: Joel. Yeah, me too. Me too. For anyone wanting to reach out to Dan or uh, find some of the links that we mentioned on the show today, you can check out the show notes for this episode at our website, HowToMoney.com. And if
1: you enjoyed this episode, we would be
0: thrilled if you left us
1: a review over in Apple Podcasts. But if you feel that we have some room for improvement, we would also love to hear from you. Just hit us up at howtomoney.com forward slash do better. We're always
0: looking for some constructive criticism. Yeah. We're not perfect, right? It's true. Yeah. But uh, working on it? No, we'll never be there. (laughs) All right. All right, Matt. Good times. Until next time, best friends out. Best friends out.